we're on this series on you asked for it, and the questions that I was asked, and there was more than one, I know that Elder Mark would love for me just to talk about creation and old earth and young earth and the beginnings of time and what the truth is about that. And we are going to touch on it, but I couldn't devote a whole sermon to it, despite the arm twisting that I got. The other question that I got asked, which kind of melds with the question that he asked me to preach on, was about the truth that we find in the Bible, but then truth that we encounter in the world, especially within the context of teenagers. I have a teenage son, so he goes off to high school. You have children who go off to university. They've been told their whole life that the Bible has the truth. They've been told by you and everybody that God is truth and the Bible explains everything. And then they start encountering teachers and they start encountering professors. And they tell them, well, there's all this other truth out in the world. And there's all these other sources of truth. And so they suddenly have this unnecessary crisis of faith. If the Bible is true, but there's other sources of truth, what do I do? And so we have to deal with this. And the problem is our fault as a church because we have misconstrued the nature of truth primarily, uh, especially in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, uh, us, sort of, uh, us now in our sort of approaching middle age. We've done a, a disservice to our children by misconstruing the nature of God's truth and understanding how God reveals himself and where truth is found through his general revelation. So that's what we're, we're preaching on, or that's what I'm preaching on today. Let me just open in prayer. Father God, I would ask that you would give me clarity as we cover a lot of topics relatively quickly. Give us uh, open hearts and open minds uh, to hear your word through uh, this sermon. And Father, that we would understand that you have... Uh, a deep and profound love for us to know the truth and not to deceive us, not to mislead us, but to give us exactly the information that we need to be able to believe and to trust in you. And so, Father, I just pray that that would uh, be true this morning and be true in our lives from this day forward. In Christ's name, amen. So, if uh, any of you remember the movie The Matrix, Matrix is now, I've come to realize, an old movie. <laughs> it was made in 1999, and uh, it's shocking that The Matrix is an old movie. Um, and uh, it was right on the cusp of the new millennium. The Matrix was incredibly tuned into the postmodern spirit of our time. And it, it was a movie about the sort of blurring of technology and spirituality and science and faith. Yeah, there's Morpheus up there. Uh, you remember Morpheus. And the centerpiece to the whole plot, the theme and the concept of the movie, is this one profound idea. Okay, This is the point behind the movie, The Matrix. That there is another reality. That there is a deeper truth that's hidden behind the reality of what we see in our day-to-day -day lives. And some people in the movie were able to see beyond the reality of the day-to-day -day life. And they were, to, they were able to perceive that there was something profoundly true behind the veil of this world. And that they could be set free from the lie that believing in this world could perpetuate. And that other people couldn't see it. They couldn't see the truth behind this world. And they were trapped in the lie of just sort of the natural things that they saw. And they thought that's all there was. And about 30 minutes into the movie, one of the lead characters, Morpheus there, who has been set free and he's able to see uh, the Matrix and he's able to see the truth behind the life that's in front of everybody, he explains to the young hero, uh, Neo, Neo uh, that there's a battle taking place in this world. That there is a battle taking place in the world that we perceive, and it's a battle to imprison 
our minds. So this is the battle that's taking place in the movie. It's the battle that is taking place in reality. There is a battle taking place for the minds of our children. There's a battle taking place for our minds in the world. There's a battle over what is real and what truth is. And there's a battle that may not seem as dramatic as it is in The Matrix, you know, with kung fu and all of that stuff going on and slow motion bullet dodging, you know. It's not quite that dramatic, but it is a far more profound battle for our minds and what tr the, the truth is. And so this sermon is on truth and it's, and it's on what is the reality behind the reality that we perceive and what are people discovering in truth when they see truth in the world. Now there's two basic problems we face and I'm going to cover the first one very quickly. It has to be short. And I think at this point we're pretty much aware of this problem. The first problem is resistance to any sort of absolute truth claim at all. So when I get up here to preach on truth, the very first thing that some of these high school students, university students, any of you millennials out there, you're saying, but what is truth, right? Isn't truth just an abstract concept? Isn't things only true for you? And I think we're beginning to finally move past the postmodern era that The Matrix was actually written and filmed in and was heavily reliant on. But uh, it is still prevalent in our, in our culture and still prevalent in our philosophy, this idea that truth is relative. So very quickly, just to understand it, um, in the Supreme Court, um, in uh, Planned Parenthood versus Casey, the Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy basically came out a couple of years ago and he said this, and it's been a, it sort of reverberated through the court system actually. He said, at the heart of liberty is the right to define one owns concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. And so the Supreme Court in the U.S. has basically said, this is the primary foundation of liberty, that you can define your own meaning. Okay? That the truth for you is what you define in all of these areas, existence, the universe, even the mystery of human life. And where does that come from? What it comes from, and a lot of apologetics have been written about this, and, and so I'm... I'm, uh, I'm borrowing from various apologetics, but if you were to trace the idea back, it would come from the, the French philosopher Foucault, and Foucault was, was a disciple of, of Nietzsche, and uh, Foucault said in the early 20th century that truth is a thing of this world. It is produced only by multiple forms of constraint that include the regular effects of power. In other words, truth claims are power plays. That to say that you have truth is to try to get power over someone else. And so I'm just, I'm just saying these things really quickly, not to get into a deep philosophical debate about this, but simply to point out that the nature of reality that we face right now is that truth is a nebulous concept for most people in our society. That they have these statements that, that their philosophies and that their teaching is based on, which is that truth is, a, is an element of this world. Truth is something that we create as a power mechanism, that we're not truly free, that we have no liberty unless we're able to create our own, our own truth. And this is the essence of postmodernism. This is the essence of the relativism of the last 20, 30 years, which I think we're all really aware of, and, and I don't have to dwell too much time on that. But I will give one quick answer to this. All of this idea of being able to see through truth, to doubt everything, to be able to define truth for yourself, C.S. Lewis actually dealt with this about 35, 40 years ago. C.S. Lewis wrote, you cannot go on explaining away forever or you will find that you have explained away your own explanation itself. You cannot go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something through it. It's good that the window should be transparent because the street or the garden beyond it is opaque. How is it if you saw through the garden too? 
If you see through everything, then everything is transparent, but a wholly transparent world is an invisible world. To see through everything is the same as not to see. Okay, so C.S. Lewis, who is always has a brilliant way of explaining things, um, has seen through this whole, the sham of relativism. Okay, so that's the message here, that this, this mistake that the world is making to say that we define our own truth and we can sort of see through everything is, in essence, not to see. And what it means in practical sense is, Lewis is saying, if you say that all truth claims are power plays, then that itself is the ultimate power play. You're making a claim about truth, which then disarms everything I have to say about truth. It is itself a power play. If you try to see through truth in that way, you've seen through your own truth. Or if you say that all statements about God and religion are simply psychological projections to deal with your own guilt and insecurity, well, that statement is a statement about God to deal with your guilt and insecurity. And so you just made your own statement, and it is also a projection of your own insecurity. So why would I listen to you? Or if you say scientifically that our ideas about God are simply the result of evolutionary processes that have all been laid down in particular pathways in our brain, and it's all a biochemical reaction, as a scientist you're saying that our belief about God and, and reality is, is all just biochemical process, your belief, your brain is a result of biochemical processes, and so your belief in that explanation is itself laid down as an evolutionary biological process, and so why would you trust your own theory? So to see through everything is eventually not to see at all. And so this relativism, postmodernism, uh, basically defeats itself by its own arguments. And so we set that aside. That's the first one. And I, and I think postmodernism luckily has ran itself just about out. And, uh, and I think we're just about done with postmodernism at this point, even though pop culture is kind of lagging behind. But I think we're at the point now where everybody is realizing and rejecting the idea that every truth claim can only be subjective, can only be from me. That any real issues of power and freedom don't come from just claiming truth itself. Any issues of power and freedom lie inside the content of the truth claims. And the second part of the argument is what we're mainly getting to, that the truth of the world seems contrary to biblical truth. So let's establish that we can say some things are true. Let's just say that that's possible based on what we just talked about. But then the main problem that we come to is that the truth of the world seems contrary to biblical truth. And it leads to a shaking of our faith and unnecessary doubts. In other words, Christians say that they have an absolute truth from God in the Bible, but we find people apparently discovering and saying very true things in the world. And the truth in the world seems to conflict with some of the biblical truths. And essentially what I'd like to do very quickly is challenge that idea. Is the Bible really at odds with what is known and discovered outside of Scripture? Is it really true that the Bible is at odds with what we find in nature? Is it really true that the Bible is at odds with what we find in philosophy and economy and politics and sociology and all these different studies? Is it really true that they are finding something different than what the Bible says? And I would challenge you that they are not finding anything different than what the Bible says. First of all, as we approach this, let's remember what the Bible is written for and what it is not. So as you're looking at the Bible and you're looking at the world, remember what the Bible is written for. And there's a good text here in Luke 24 that I just refer to as Jesus, after his resurrection, is traveling with the two men on the road to Emmaus. You'll remember the story. And they are very distraught about what has been happening because they know the scripture and they know the Messiah and what is happening politically and what is happening in the world around them is different than what they thought they found in the scripture. And so Jesus says in Luke 24:27. 
He says as he's walking with them, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So first of all, as we approach this, understand the Bible is about Jesus. Okay, the Bible is not necessarily about biology. The Bible is not necessarily about science. It's not necessarily about politics. It's not necessarily about sociology. The scriptures are about Jesus, and they tell you everything you need to know about Jesus. Everything is about salvation through the Son of God. It's not about you, and it's not written to satisfy all the questions that any human can ask. It's not written to satisfy our curiosity about things other than our curiosity about God and looking into the grace of God through Jesus Christ. And so the scriptures about Moses are not really about Moses and not really about us. They're about le- And they're not really about leadership. We can learn things about leadership from Moses, but that's not what they were written for. And we can learn things about law from Moses, but they weren't written about law. They weren't written about how to be a good people. They were written about the promise of a coming Jesus. And the Passover is not about lambs. The Passover is about Jesus. And so we have to understand, first of all, that when we look into scripture, what the Bible is about and what it's not. But that is not to say, having said that, that anything in Scripture should contradict what we find in the world. Okay, So I'm just saying you can't use the Bible necessarily as a textbook for biology. But nothing in the Bible that speaks to biology will contradict biology. Okay, So just understand that. There's a lot to absorb here, so just bear with me. <laughs> but that's the first premise. Understand what the Bible was written for and what it wasn't written for. Secondly, though, the Bible does most accurately describe what we observe in the world. My text for this is Romans 1, 19 to 20. This is what the Bible says we should find in the world. For what can be known about God is plain to them, the people of the world who don't believe in God. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they, we, are without excuse. So this text says that what we should expect to find in nature, what the Bible tells us is true. So we should expect to find that out in the world, we should see the truth of God. Right? It says that nature puts the truth of God on display. And so out in the world, in nature, in biology, in science, in sociology, in politics, in all the areas of nature, we should see the truth of God. And we shouldn't be surprised when we find it, because God has put it on display there for people to find, so that they would know about him and be without excuse. But the other thing that the Bible says that we should see is we should see people denying that. It says that they're going to reject it, that they are going to give up the creator for the created. And thinking that they're wise, they're going to become foolish. And so the Bible says you should expect to see that even though God is on display, people are just going to ignore it and and try and give another explanation other than a creator. Do we see that? Yeah. That's exactly what we see. We see all the amazing attributes of God in display in nature in all the areas. And we also see people who are dead set against acknowledging that any of that truth comes from God or that it displays God. The Bible describes for us exactly what we expect to see. That's why I believe in the Bible, because I read the Bible and I looked at the world and the Bible described to me exactly what I saw in the world. And I read the Bible and I looked at my own heart and the Bible described to me exactly what I found in my own heart. So I knew it was true because it was... It was easy to test. Will I see God in all these truths in nature? Yes. Will I see people arguing, saying it's not God? Yes. That's what I see. And so as a church, as believers, we have to understand that this is what we can expect. 
And we have to equip our children to understand, this is what you're going to find, kids. Isaac, this is what you're going to find when you go to school. You're going to have these teachers who have seen amazing truths about God, and they're going to try to explain God away in the very face of those truths. And what do I mean by that? Blind squirrels. There's a saying, even a blind squirrel finds a nut sometimes. And that's stuck in my brain, and it's, and it's, and it's, it's a little bit arrogant, and so I, you know, I don't mean it that way. It's just a funny phrase that's stuck in my mind, and it reminds me of this. Here are all the places that God has put nuts that we blind squirrels find them. And even blind squirrels who don't know God find nuts sometimes. In philosophy, Plato, who is four or five hundred years before the time of Paul, um, and one of the, if you've read Plato, I don't know how many people here have read Plato, but one of the big things is Plato philosophized on the nature of what he saw in reality, and so he was looking at reality and trying to come up with an explanation for it. One of Plato's main theories was archetypes, the archetypes of Plato, and his idea was is that everything in this world is a shadow of a greater reality. In other words, if we are to say this person is beautiful, and this person is more beautiful, and this person is more beautiful, Plato realized there must be an ultimate beauty. There must be an ultimate beauty of which all beauty is a derivative of. Or if we were to say this is true and this is more true, there must be an ultimate truth of which all truth is derivative of. Or if we were to say this man is brave and this man is braver, there must be an ultimate bravery, an archetype of bravery of which all bravery is derivative of. Plato's right. There is an ultimate beauty. There is an ultimate justice. There is an ultimate bravery. It's God. And we're all shadows of what we were meant to be. The blind squirrel found the nut, but he didn't know what the source was. So he just said, well, it's archetypes. There's some beauty out there that we're all just shadows of. And it is true, Plato. You've just not seen who the ultimate beauty is. It's God. Or spirituality. A lot of people turn to Eastern religions. And the Eastern religions got a lot of stuff right. One of the main things the Eastern religions that finds so appealing and, and the stuff that in their discovery as they examined the human condition and spiritual nature, if you look at Buddha and, and, and Confucius and all those people, the main thing that Buddha, Buddha hit upon is that all of the troubles of man and all the problems that we get into come out of desire. We desire things and because we desire things, we then fight for them or we uh, get into conflict over these desires. You're right, Buddha. We are selfish people fallen by sin. We have misplaced desires. Buddha is not wrong. His answer, though, then, is to sit under a tree and eliminate every desire. Have no desire so that the man is no conflict. Hey, Buddha, you're right. The problem with man is sinful desire, that we falsely desire the wrong things for selfish reasons. But that is not the answer. The answer is to put our desire on the right things. The answer is to desire in the right way, to have a desire for God and for Jesus and the holy things of life so that we can have life abundantly, not have life minimally. Buddha's answer was just don't have a life, just desire nothing. Jesus says, I've come to give you life and give it abundantly to desire the right things and pursue them and be filled up by those good desires. So Buddha's on the right track, but he just missed it. Emotionally, you know, bringing it forward a few thousand years. You know, Oprah or Dr. Phil. I want to talk about blind squirrels. <laughs> but every once in a while, they find a nut. 
Okay, the things that, that Oprah talks about when you look and you read her magazine or you watch her show, they understand, they have tuned into the perception that as humans we need to care for our soul. That there is a right way and a wrong way to exist. That there is a healthy spiritual reality that we need to try to conform to. But they're totally missing the boat because you're right. They, 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 we, we've moved beyond denying that there's a soul. We've moved beyond denying that there is an emotional reality and a right and a wrong. Oprah and Dr. Phil and all these people, Eckhart, Toll, and ugh, whatever, um, they, they found the reality that our, whole, our soul needs to be healthy, but they're completely missing the boat because they deny Christ. And so they don't understand how to become spiritually healthy and emotionally healthy because they've misplaced, they found the nut, but they don't know the source, the oak tree. Or in family. You know, the health and the benefit of stable and complete families and, and all the things that the world discovers there that, you know, the stuff they find with, with sons and daughters who grow up without fathers and, and all the different things there and the brokenness of the world and a broken family and all the effects of that. It's all right there laid out for them. But they won't admit who put the family together and why the family is healthy when it's that way. Or politically, the value of the individual, the value of self-freedom, the value of material ownership, the necessity of governance. We find all these things. We know that democracy uh, is just about as close to what you can get as far as governing people in a fallen world can get. So we see the goodness in all these things that the Bible would, would back up and say, it's, it's, it's God who said that we are free. That it's Jesus who came to set us free from bondage. It's God that said that there is neither slave nor free man, neither male nor female, but everyone is one in Jesus Christ. These are things that are true, that are built into who we are because they're true of God and they're true of His creation. And so we can discover these things, but then not give credit for them. Or biology. I posted a thing on our Facebook page about how prayer changes the brain they're discovering. That people who pray actually alter their brain chemistry and their synapses in a positive way through prayer. And why would we be surprised at that? God said, he told us in his word that we can be transformed by the renewing of our mind and that prayer and meditation has an effect on us, that we become new creatures and new creations as we dwell on his truth. So we see these truths in history, the confirmation of events and the city locations and the battles. You know, history used to be one of the places they attacked the Bible until it kept confirming everything that the archaeologists found. You know, they would say, well, these, you know, King David didn't exist or he wasn't in that location at that time. And then they'd find a tablet and it confirmed everything. Then they'd say, well, there's these Hittites and there were no Hittites. Nobody ever, you know, who were the Hittites? And then, you know, 15 years later, they find the Hittites exactly where the Bible said they'd find the Hittites. And, you know, so they've given up trying to disprove the Bible on history or in science. Finally, science, the good one. Here we go. Here you go, Mark. The old earth, young earth issue in science, all the areas of science that we could talk about, irreducible complexity and the evidence of a designer and mitochondrial DNA and all of these different things that I could go into but clearly don't have time. There's no need to fear the truth because even though the Bible is not a science book, it doesn't contradict science. And, and the un, unlester answer, which I will give, uh, which may come across a little uncommitted, <laughs> but is actually just an affirmation that I strongly feel the jury is still out on how God did everything in the universe. And I think we have scriptures that can support either answer. What we know is that God is a creator and that his approach uh, 
to nature and, and, and our understanding of the nature of space and time. The Bible doesn't need to contradict science. Whether it's able to, um, actually able to discover the truth or not, I'm not sure. Science isn't always that good about that. Um, but just quickly, um, in this issue of old earth and young earth, whether science can resolve the sort of quantum nature of the universal expansion and what that means about time dilation and what that means about the velocity of light and a whole bunch of things like that. Um, the point there is that the universe they've discovered is expanding and that, uni and that galaxies are moving farther and farther apart at a rapid pace and, and so time shifts the light and all of that stuff. But in addition to that, more space is being created. In addition to the velocity of the of the universes of the sorry galaxies apart from each other, is that more space is being created in the space in between. You understand what I'm saying? So it's like when you put a loaf of bread in the oven and it rises up. Okay, so the surface of the bread is moving farther apart from the center of the bread, but there's more bread space expanding in between. In addition to the velocity of the galaxies moving through the bread, if you can imagine that. <laughs> Okay, imagine, ra imagine raisin bread. The galaxies are raisins in the bread. And because the bread is expanding, the, the raisins are getting farther apart. You with me? However, that's not due to velocity. The raisins are not moving through the bread. The bread is expanding. Okay, so what we have in the universe is we have both phenomenon taking place. The galaxies are moving through space at velocity and the bread is rising so that space is foaming up or space is being created between us and the other galaxies. And science doesn't have an answer to this yet. This is the quantum nature of space that there is no answer to yet. It, we don't understand how that affects time. We don't understand how that affects velocity at this point. And so we don't know whether science is going to actually discover that truth or resolve it well. And the relative nature of time. We see time passing at a certain speed, but what time does what speed does time pass if you're on the surface of the sun? Because time is affected by velocity and gravity. And so the age of things just depends on your perspective. And science doesn't have final answers on all of these things. And the great thing is, is that between the issue of yom and the, and the length of a day in scripture and texts like Isaiah 45:12. it says, It is I who made the earth and created mankind on it. It was my own hands that stretched out the heavens. I marshaled the starry hosts. Or in Job 9, He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the wave of the seas. Or in Psalm 104:2, The Lord wraps Himself in light as with garment, and He stretches out the heavens like a tent. So whether it is an issue of the age of Yom, and whether it's a day, or whether it's an era, or whether it is this nature of stretching out of the universe... The Bible can accommodate what science has discovered in terms of age and in terms of distance and in terms of velocity. And so we don't have to get hung up on what science finds because it's only revealing the truth of God. It's only revealing how God operated. And so we can praise God in it. So all of that to say, in every field, people are able to see the deep imprint of a coherently designed world and an integrated emotional, spiritual, and social human race, but they refuse to acknowledge the designer. They can see it. They can see that everything is integrated, everything works, everything is coherent, everything is designed, but they deny God. And taking credit away from God for His glory and His truth is just one deep-seated form of our rebellion. And so when we're sitting in those classrooms and we're sitting reading those books or we're watching Nova on TV or whatever 
And we hear these people explaining away God because they think they found truth rather than seeing God in the truth that they found. That's just a part of the rebellious nature of mankind, that we would see the truth of God, that we would see the glory of God, and then deny him the praise for it. And we don't want to raise our kids up to be those kinds of people. We don't want to raise our kids up to be people who see the truth, know the truth of God, but then deny giving him the glory for it. That's rebellion. It says in Romans 1, 21 to 23, this is the follow-on from seeing everything that they saw in nature. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanging the glory of the immortal God for the images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They would rather worship their own creative thinking and their own creation than worship the creator. And they have a deep-seated bias to do so. The people who are teaching these things and who are rejecting God have a bias to make sure that God stays out of the picture because if they admitted that there was a designer and they admitted there was a God, they would have to confront their own sin and they'd have to confront their own falling short and their own rebellion in refusing to acknowledge that God and they don't want to do that. And so they will come up with any answer other than God. Or as Neo says in The Matrix in answer to Morpheus, Neo says, I don't like the idea that I'm not in control of my life. That's our deep-seated rebellion. The people who are teaching these things are not comfortable with admitting that they're not in control. They don't like the idea that there's a God they would actually have to respect and believe and honor and glory. So what do we do then? What do we do? We have to get to the practical thing. First of all, don't believe everything you think. Okay? Don't believe everything you think. Don't believe everything you think about God. Don't believe everything you think about yourself. Don't believe everything you think about the world. Don't speculate and don't listen to the speculation of others. Because we all have a mental illness and it's called sin. Everyone has been cursed by the fall and corrupted by sin. And so when we think, we think we know something. It's just from the book of Second Opinions. It's our idea. It's not from Scripture. Okay? So just don't believe everything you think. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? And as humans, we have this amazing ability to deceive ourselves. And 1 John 1.8 says, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. As humans, we are deceptive to ourselves. And so don't believe everything you think. And if the Bible seems to contradict truth or offend your personal sensibilities, I want you to consider three things. Consider that the Bible doesn't teach what you think it teaches. Jesus had to correct those people on the road to Emmaus. They thought they knew what the Bible teaches, but they didn't know what the Bible taught. Jesus had to correct them. And so we might think we know what the Bible teaches, but maybe we don't understand what the Bible is teaching. And so we have to guard ourselves to make sure we don't think we know more than we do. I've had to correct my thinking over things on the years about the Bible. What if I had, when I was a teenager, thinking I was really smart and knew everything that everybody else didn't, and I was reading the Bible, and I decided to believe the, own, the things that I was thinking about the Bible, what if I had, as a teenager, decided to say, you know what, the Bible is stupid, this has been proven wrong in a whole bunch of different areas, I'm way smarter than this, if I was God, I'd do it better, and I put it down and I walked away. What if I had done that? What if I thought and believed what I thought at that time instead of staying under the instruction of Scripture? I would have left. I wouldn't be in ministry, that's for sure. I wouldn't still be with my wife because she would not put up with me. Right? If we had given up on the Bible, you think for your own lives. 
if you'd given up on the Bible back when you thought it said something different until you finally came under, maybe years later, under the teaching of Scripture, and you understood, that's what it means. I didn't realize that's what it meant before. Man, I was wrong. So don't give up. God is still teaching you. Secondly, if you think that the Bible says something that you're uncomfortable with or you don't think is right, secondly, consider that you don't understand because of your cultural bias. The Jews were reading and thinking of Scripture as Jews. They read everything as recipients of the promises of Israel, and they were not reading the Scriptures in the sense of the Gentile world for which it was meant. And so the Jews missed the Messiah because they were reading the Scriptures wrong because of their cultural bias. We are seeped in cultural bias here. And so when we read the Scripture on marriage, on sex, on slavery, on uh, women and men, on gender issues next week, we read the Bible through our cultural lens. And we read things through our own cultural blinders. And so it may not be that the Bible is untrue. It may be that our culture and our lenses are untrue. Thirdly, if you're reading the Bible and you're thinking it disagrees with you, consider that you assume our culture is superior or that your culture is a superior culture. Let me explain what this means. What the Bible says about sex is a problem in our culture, right? In our culture, people read the Bible, they read what it says about sex, unmarried sex and fornication and all that stuff, and that's a problem in our culture. But what it says about forgiveness and loving our enemies is great. In North American culture, we're all into, you know, Release people from guilt, forgive people, love your enemies. Everybody loves that here, okay? Hold that thought. Now go to the Middle East. What the Bible says about sex is a good start. Probably a little light, right, in the Middle East. They would go a little farther than what the Bible says in the Middle East about sex. But they're okay with that. That doesn't bother them. What the Bible says about loving your enemies and forgiving them in the Middle East, they will have none of that. So what we struggle with in North America with the Bible in the very same day is not what they're struggling with in the Middle East, Middle Eastern culture in the Bible. Sex, can't deal with it, love your enemies, great. Over there, sex, it's a good start, I'd tighten it up a little bit, love your enemies, never. Okay, so we think we have a cultural superiority over the Bible and so we interpret it through our lens. Secondly, feed your minds. Feed your minds. Firstly, don't believe everything you think for all of those reasons. Secondly, feed your minds. Read the Bible. Matthew 4, 4. But he answered, it is written, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Psalm 1, 1 to 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seats of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law... Excuse me, he meditates day and night. Or Psalm 19, 1-2, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. In other words, if you want to understand the Bible, you have to feed your mind by reading the Bible. Thirdly, guard your minds, pray every day. Feed your mind and guard your mind. 2 Corinthians 10:5. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. If you're struggling with truths in the Bible and truths in the world, read your Bible and pray every single day. And take captive those thoughts because they will destroy the argument and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God. Proverbs 15, 14, a wise person is hungry for truth while a fool feeds on trash. Don't feed on trash, okay? Turn off Oprah. Get, just stop. <laughs> it's not feeding you healthy stuff. 
Psalm 101.3, I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. And sometimes we have to set our eyes on things that are true, but explained in a false way. So I'm not saying sit in class and tell your teachers they're idiots. I'm not saying that. Sometimes we have to gaze upon what is true, relish the, the truth of God in biology, and relish the truth of God in philosophy, and relish the truth of God in family and social studies, and, and relish the truth of God in, in science. Gaze on the truth of God, but reject the, the explanation that it's not from God. Don't dwell on that explanation. Understand that it is God revealing himself. And you can be a perfectly happy Christian scientist doing that. You can read Hugh Ross. Mark has copies for you, I'm sure. <laughs> but there are lots of scientists, lots of philosophers, lots of counselors, lots of uh, deep, deep thinkers who are firmly Christian and uphold the truth of God in what they find in the world. Finally, Philippians 4 here on prayer. Philippians 4, 6 to 8. Don't be anxious about anything. We remember that part. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. So Paul is talking about prayer. This is the part that's, that I want to focus on. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And finally, brothers, he says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Paul is exhorting the Christian community, embrace the truth and the beauty and the love and the justice of God, whatever you find it, because it's excellent and worthy to be thought of and meditated on. And fourthly, always be learning. So don't believe everything that you think, because you are often wrong. <laughs> Secondly, feed yourself the scripture. Thirdly, guard your mind in prayer. Fourthly, always be learning. Proverbs 18:15. An intelligent heart acquires knowledge, and the ear of the wise seeks knowledge. Proverbs 19:8. He goes on to say, "The one who acquires wisdom loves himself, and the one who preserves understanding will prosper." Don't settle your mind too firmly on matters of truth that the world speaks. There is a lot that is not grasped not apprehended apart from the full understanding of God's nature and his creation. There is so much in the world out there, so many truths that can't be reconciled apart from Scripture, and they are trying hard to reconcile them, but they can't, apart from the understanding of the impact of the curse and sin and an entire doctrine of theology of understanding God and the human heart and the nature of the world. And in order to exchange the evidence of a designer, the theories of the world have to keep ranging farther and farther and farther afield and farther from the truth in order to compensate for the unexplained. And so what we have to do is we don't settle our minds too firmly on those things. The world can say things. They can say that eggs are bad for you, and then they can say eggs are good for you. And then they can say don't eat butter, and then they say eat butter. And then they say there's good cholesterol and bad cholesterol. And they say they find planets so that could hold life around other stars. And then I just read on Google a couple of days ago, they said they didn't find those planets after all because the scientists misread some graviton fluctuation, something or other. So the flux capacitor wasn't filled up or something. I don't know. Doc, Doc Brown would know. But anyways, I mean, just the truth, they, they, just hold lightly to truth, okay? Don't panic. One of the things we did, and I'll finish on this, and then we'll do communion, sorry. One of the things that I think the Christian church did in this evolution thing is they panicked early. Right? They thought that because of what was found in evolution and the age of the world, they thought that this was going to somehow disprove God. And so they fought 
against evolution and they fought against the age of the world. They insisted on things that they didn't have to insist on because if they had have just waited and been confident that the truth of God would come through, they would have found that evolution is still not a theory that is proven. They would have found that God is easily able to create within the amount of time of either billions of years, if it wants to be, it's still not enough time for evolution. The world can be four billion years old. You don't have enough time in four billion years through random uh, gene mutation to create the life that we have. There are so many problems with the theory of evolution that if Christians had just waited and not panicked, it would have disproved itself. Okay? And, and, and I, can, I could go on and on into all the problems that are there in terms of the species that are dying versus the species that are being created and, and the Cambrian explosion. And there's so many problems with it. If we had have not panicked, we could have just waited and let the truth of God reveal itself and we would have been fine. And we wouldn't have created a crisis of faith in a whole generation of people over this, over nothing. And so just all that is the fourth point is just always be learning and hold lightly to the truths that are out there. Don't panic when you read on Google that you know somebody proved God doesn't exist. They did not prove God doesn't exist. You know, don't panic when they say there's a region in your brain that if, you know, that region of the brain shows stimulation, then there's a certain propensity to, you know, believe in God and that belief in God, you know, increases the activity in that area of the brain. Of course you're going to find that. Because we're built by God. And God said we're going to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And he says we become a new creation in him. So why wouldn't you put an MRI in a brain and see a Christian brain and a non-Christian brain not be different? Of course, don't panic. It's the truth of God. So in conclusion, your faith has nothing to fear from the world. Go bravely into high school. Go bravely into college. Go bravely into university. Go bravely into your job. Go bravely into your book club and your dinner parties and debates with your friends. We can embrace real truth wherever we find it in society because all truth is the truth of God. Your cultural bias may fool you. Your lack of understanding may trick you. Your unexamined cultural superiority may blind you and cause you tension with the Bible. But your faith in Christ Jesus and the teaching of Scripture will never contradict truth wherever it is found. Okay, You can believe that God is truth and the truth that we find is from God and it will never contradict itself. Let's pray. Father God... We just give you thanks this morning for your word. I just pray that we would be brave, that we would be emboldened, that we would not be afraid of the silly theories of the world. And at the same time, we would celebrate what they discover. Every quasar and every uh, you know, ruin that they find and every biological function and everything they discover in DNA and your code and all the things that philosophers discover... All those truths, Lord, I pray that we would embrace them because they just resound and resound and resound the glory of your truth. And Father, I pray that we would just go bravely into these things and not fear. You are so much greater than these tinkering fools in their laboratories. And I was a tinkering fool. I have great respect for all the, the knowledge that's there, but these people that are blind and just trying to explain you away, Father God, there's no need to. What do they fear? Why would they fear a God of the universe as loving and as merciful as you? Lord, we love you. Settle this truth in our heart. In Christ's name.